Welcome to Wildwood College Life of Wildwood Community Church in Norman, Oklahoma. We are four following Jesus together to the glory of God. We meet on Sunday mornings at 9.45 for Bible teaching, breakfast, and fellowship, and would love to see you there this week. Follow us on Instagram at Wildwood College for more information. And with that, let's dive into this week's message. This semester, the past few weeks, we have been talking about the history of a God that redeems. So everybody hold up your Bible, okay? If you got it, hold up your Bible. If you don't, hold up your phone, because that's where it is too, right? Okay, so the entire, the point of this series is so that you can understand the story of this book, okay? So that you can understand what this book is about, the arc of its history, and what everything is pointing toward, okay? So the first week, we talked about these different ages, right? We talked that God has basically worked differently and interacted differently with humanity at different points in time. Not that the, met, uh, the means of salvation has ever changed, but the way in which he interacts with, uh, with the world has changed. And so we talked about the age of innocence, the age of conscience, and the age of government, and how through those eras, God was working differently. And then last week, uh, John, Pastor John, he talked about the age of promise and the age of law, or talking about Abraham and Moses, okay? And this morning, we are talking about the age of grace, okay? So we are going to be in our New and Old Testament today, so I hope you're, you don't have carpal tunnel, carpal tunnel, because we'll be flipping back and forth like crazy, okay? All right, so imagine for a moment with me that you guys are in a dimly lit room. If you guys are bad at imagination, I've got a picture. Okay, so imagine you're in a dimly lit room. As you walked into this room, your eyes had to adjust. You're not sure this art that's on the, the walls, what it's actually depicting. You can't really see the people in the room. Do you know them? Do you not? And as you walk around, you can't even really make out what the room is. Now, I want you to imagine you're outside on a bright, sunny day. Okay, you can see everything for miles. There's no clouds in the sky. Everything is clear. And you can even see, for people who have glasses, you might experience this for the first time. You can actually see that the leaves have an outline, right? There's ridges on the leaves. I remember when I finally got my prescription, I was like, oh my gosh, I can see, right? That's kind of what we're going for. Okay, you can see even like, I don't know if you guys have ever walked on the South Oval and there's like a crack on the, sh the, the road or whatever. And if you don't see it, you're totally going to face plant. It's happened to me plenty of times. And in this bright sunny day, you can see that, right? And then also uh, you can see your friends all around you guys. Everything is clear on a bright sunny day, right? Well, I share this analogy because it is a great uh, analogy to, to, to basically compare the experience between the age of law and the age of grace. Comparing the age of law to the age of grace is like comparing a dimly lit room to a bright sunny day. The clarity of who God is, the clarity of his plan for history is clearer than ever before. And that's a point that we have been talking about through redemptive history is that we see a trajectory of clarity. In each age, God's righteousness is becoming clearer. So today our main idea is going to be talking about the comparison between the age of law and the age of grace, the, the age in which we now live. But here's the problem. Sometimes we act as though we are still living in the age of law. Now maybe you can relate. When you do 
good things, do you ever feel like maybe now God is happy with you? Or when you sin and do things and you feel that, you feel, that make you feel guilty, do you sit in that shame and wonder if you're even worthy of God's love? The problem is that we implicitly mix our performance with our salvation. My goal today is to instead see and understand the arc of redemptive history and live as God intended people to live in the age of grace. By walking in step with the Spirit, living in the freedom provided through Christ, and knowing God personally through Jesus Christ, empowered by the Holy Spirit. That's my goal today. So our main idea is going to be focusing on comparing the age of law and the age of grace. Since it's the previous age, the one right before it, there has to be some carryover and misunderstanding how God relates to humanity in this era or this age. We see that all throughout Jesus' discourses with the Pharisees, them living in this old way of life. And so we're going to look at what has changed in the age of grace, and in particular, these three points. Number one, our basis for righteousness. Number two, our relationship with God. And number three, our family tree. But before we begin, I think it's important to review what we've learned the last two weeks. Okay, let's bring everybody up to speed. Number one, or the the main point is to define what an age is. Okay, and so when I say this word throughout this series, what I'm basically saying is that it's a period of time when God interacts differently with humanity. Now, there's this Greek word for administration. It's oikonomia, kind of sounds like economy. And it literally translates to dispensation, arrangement, or administration. And the main idea of this word is that the way in which, you know, God is managing or administrating the affairs of his household. Okay, so throughout history, there have been different ages or administrations. Okay, and so let's review of just the seven ages that we see in Scripture. Okay, the first is the age of innocence. This is from creation to the fall. It takes place in between these two events. The age of conscience, in which God was basically making himself known through moral uh, morality and uh, the natural moral law, was from the fall to the flood. The age of government was whenever God finally instituted a way to curb evil, was from the flood to the Tower of Babel. And then the age of promise was Abraham's call to the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. Now you understand why it's the age of law, okay? From Mount Sinai to the first coming of Christ was the age of law. And now the age in which we're living right now, which we're talking about today, is the age of grace. From Christ's first coming to the second coming, okay? And so the seventh, uh, the seventh age we're going to talk about next, next time, which is the millennial kingdom, Christ's second coming, and it'll last for a thousand years. So last week we learned a lot about Abraham and Moses, right? Pastor John talked to us about that. And in particular, he talked about the ages of promise and law. Well, now we're going to talk about the age of grace in context of how things have changed since the age of law. I think it's really helpful to look at it this way because we need to understand how things are different. We need to understand, especially since this is the era in which we now live, it's not just enough to understand it, but to understand the difference, okay? To understand what has actually changed. Now, this list, it's not going to be exhaustive, but it will clarify, I think, how God interacts differently with humanity in this era, here and now. 
So the first point will focus on how the basis of righteousness has changed. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Deuteronomy 6, 24 through 25. And I'm going to explain real quick kind of the Old Covenant system. The Old Covenant system was, uh, in the Old Covenant system, the righteousness uh, that we're talking about here was basically based on adherence to the law. The Mosaic law was a collection of religious, civil, ceremonial laws uh, given to Moses at Mount Sinai for the Israelites to follow. It consisted of 613 individual commandments, and Israelites were only righteous if, and if we read the, the scriptures, we'll see that that is a big if, if they adhered to the law. Deuteronomy 6, 24 through 25, which is talking about the priestly duties in this book, it says, And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our good always, that he might pres preserve us alive as we are this day. And it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to do all this commandment before the Lord our God as he has commanded us. Now, fulfilling the law was the only way to be righteous. But what do we know about humans? What do we know about sinful humanity? They couldn't do it, right? No one can fulfill the law perfectly in sin. See, the law, what it was meant to do was to reveal God's holiness. It was clarifying his character to the nation of Israel, what he was like. And God's standard was revealed through this system. And the biggest thing that it did was it actually revealed the separation or the difference between God's perfect holiness and man's sinful humanity, their inability to live up to the law. Okay, that is what the law basically did was it, it showed that the Israelites were sinful. It also provided a temporary means of forgiveness of sin, right? Through the sacrificial system. But one thing that I want to make clear is that the sacrificial system did not take away sin. There was atonement or there was forgiveness of sin, but it did not take away sin or remove it completely. This is what Hebrews is talking about in Hebrews 10.4 when he says, For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. It also says there can be no forgiveness of sin without the shedding of blood. Um, and so this idea is really that the blood of bulls and goats, even though they provide a way of forgiveness, it could not take away the sins. It could not take away their sins. This is how Galatians 3.10 puts it. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. And in Romans 7.7, Paul demonstrates that the law reveals sin, right? He says, what then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known that it is to covet if the law had not sin, said, you shall not covet. So what has changed in the age of grace? Well, let's look at a couple passages in Romans and Galatians. So here we've kind of seen the inadequacy of the law, right? Provide a means of forgiveness, but it did not provide a means for righteousness because it revealed their unrighteousness. But this is the basis of righteousness in the new covenant in the age of grace. It says by works, this is what Destiny and Ishani read this morning. Verse 20 in Romans 3. 
says this. For by works of the law, no human being will just be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been, man has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. And we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So here Paul claims that the righteousness of God comes through what? Do you see it there? It comes through faith in Jesus Christ. He makes it clear that by our actions, we condemn ourselves. We show ourselves to be unrighteous. We are unable to live up to the law. We are sinners. And if we make the case to God, trying to explain our righteousness, trying to say, hey, look at all the good things we did, the verdict is the same. We will be declared guilty. But we are not justified by our adherence to the law. Instead, we're justified by the person and work of Christ, by His grace as a gift. That means that our basis of righteousness is totally unmerited. But this isn't isolated, this idea in Romans, right? We also see this in Galatians chapter 2, verse 16. Here we have basically Paul's doctrine of justification in a nutshell, okay? If you're ever wondering, what does Paul believe of how do we be made right in God's eyes? This is it. Galatians 2.16 says, Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ Jesus and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Paul helps us see the inadequacy of the law and instead that righteousness through Christ is the hope of God. Paul essentially, he repeats himself three times. What does he do? He says, through faith in Christ, believed in Christ Jesus, faith in Christ. Do you think he's trying to make a point here? I think he is. I think he's trying to say, listen, if you put your faith in your ability, you will fail. But if you put your faith in Christ, not only will you be saved, but you will be declared righteousness. You'll be declared righteous. And this is where it becomes important to note of what I'm not saying. See, justification and atonement are two different things. Justification is a legal term in which you are declared righteous. Atonement is a ceremonial word that essentially means made clean or forgiven. Okay? Those two different ideas. Justification, made righteous. Atonement, sacrifice that leads to forgiveness. In the law, there was a way to be forgiven of sins or to be atoned for sins through the sacrificial system, but the salvation or eternal justification, that was always based in their faith in God. Okay? So that's the difference. So it's kind of like this. Some of you guys have heard the court... Raise your hand if you've ever heard the courtroom analogy. You guys heard this? Okay. I'm going to adjust it a little bit to kind of help fit this idea, okay? So picture yourself in a courtroom for a second, okay? You're on the stand. The judge is presiding over your case, and this judge, he is just, he is holy, and man, when he, he looks at you, he just has eyes that pierce right through, the, through like your soul, right? Like he sees all of you. 
and you know you're guilty. You know as the charges are read that the evidence is overwhelming. Based on that evidence, you know that the just due for your actions will lead to the death penalty. But as the verdict is getting ready to be read, as it's about to come, something incredible happens. You hear a voice from the back. You hear a voice from the back. And it was the lawyer who had come to defend you. And he walks in and he stands next to you. And you realize that it's Jesus. Jesus looks at the judge. And what he says to the judge is, I have taken this person's place. I have served their sentence. They can go free. They are innocent. Jesus then walks up to the stand, showing the holy judge the wounds in his hands. He lift up, lifts up his shirt, displaying the wounds in his side, and shows the scars on his back. And the judge bangs his gavel, and the verdict is come. And what does he say? He says, not guilty. You're stunned because you know you haven't done anything to deserve this kind of mercy, this grace. But Jesus insists on taking your punishment. You were sentenced the death penalty, but instead, what do you do? You walk away free. This is the difference between law and grace. In trying to attain righteousness through the law, the defendant cannot prove his righteousness through his own works. But grace is the defendant who has been declared righteous by the judge through his faith in Christ. The judge, or in this case, God the Father, looks upon Christ and not us. Thankfully. We are all sinners. We are all deserving of God's judgment, his punishment. But through the person and work of Jesus Christ, we can be justified. And not only justified, but declared righteous before God. But it's not by our own works, right? It's not by our adherence to the law or the ability to live up, but it's through what, who Christ is and what he has done. So how has the basis of righteousness changed? Righteousness was attained by adhering to the law perfectly, but in the age of Christ, Christ's righteousness is, I'm going to say a theological word, but I'm going to explain it because it's so beautiful. But in the age of Christ, grace, Christ's righteousness is imputed to us. In other words, Christians today receive Christ's righteousness basically as a credit to their account. A wage is something you earn, but it, this is basically you got a refund that you did not earn whatsoever. It was credited to your account. So essentially, what Paul says in this passage, 2 Corinthians 5.21 is he says, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that what? In Christ, in him, we might become the righteousness of God. We call this the great exchange. Simultaneously, if you have trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of sin, he identifies with your sin on the cross, paying for your penalty, while simultaneously we get to identify with his righteousness. Okay, so we, he exchanges his righteousness for our sin, which makes absolutely no sin out, no sense outside of the fact that God loves you more than anything that you can imagine. If we are in Christ, then we have become the righteousness of God. Not only have we been forgiven, but we have been declared righteous. Do you see the difference? We have been declared 
righteous. Our identity has shifted. We do good works not to earn something, but because we are something. We do good works not to earn something, but because we are something. Paul in 2 Corinthians 5.17, just a few verses, says that we are a new creation. If anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. The old is gone, the new is here. This idea is that we are producing the only kind of fruit that a Christian can produce. The fruits of the Spirit. The reason we do good works is that's because we are. We have been made good. Do you see, do you see that? It's not that we're trying to earn something, but because we have been changed, that is the only thing we can do. So, the question becomes, are we walking, quote, in step with the Spirit? I think it can be easy to rest on our justification and ignore the process of becoming more and more like Christ in the Christian life. And I want you guys to think about it. What is your response, if you've trusted in Christ, what is your response to your salvation? Is it this passive selfishness of now I can do whatever I want? Or is it radical gratitude? I think the proper response to this gift of salvation is loving obedience, expressing itself through love. So ask yourself, ask yourself this. When I share my faith, when I kill or conquer sin in my life, when I read my Bible, when I pray, do I take pride in these things? Do I say, man, I'm a good Christian? Or when I fail, when I lapse into old sinful habits, ignore the Holy Spirit's prompting, do I get consumed by shame? Man, am I even saved? Am I even worthy to be saved? If the answer is yes to either of those things, you might be living in an age of law mindset where you are basing your salvation, you are basing your righteousness on your own doings. But friends, that is not the age we live in. We live in the age of grace, where we've been saved by no, no work of our own, but through Christ, who he was, being perfect, being without sin, without blemish, being God in flesh, and what he did on the cross by dying on the cross for us. Our actions are not motivated by trying to earn something, but they are motivated by who we are. Someone who has been saved. Someone who has been declared righteous. So let's talk about these ideas at our tables for the next few minutes, and then we're going to come back and talk about two other ways in which the age of grace has changed. So we, we got through one point, but we know there's two more points, right? So what have we learned? The basis of righteousness has changed from the adherence to the law to imputed righteousness by Christ, okay, through faith in Christ. But that's not the only thing that changed, okay? That's not the only thing that changed in the age of grace at Christ's first coming. Our relationship with God has also changed, okay? So in the age of law, uh, the relationship with God between his people uh, was mediated, right? It was mediated through what we call priests. Priests essentially serve as mediators or the go-between. So as you read uh, Leviticus and Deuteronomy, you'll see that the relationship between God and man was mediated by priests and the sacrificial system. Um, they basically acted as the go-between between man and God. Okay? And so the sacrificial system, this was at the center of their role, making sacrifices, 
doing those things. And this system was the means for people to receive forgiveness of sin to maintain their relationship with God. Okay, So they had to become clean through, through these sacrifices so that they could maintain right relationship with God. Yet, even though God provided this way to maintain relationship, it didn't meet the deepest need of God's people. Despite this system, the people could not develop an intimate and personal relationship with God. In the book of Hebrews, it talks about this idea over and over again, and it demonstrates the superiority of Christ over the Jewish religious systems of the Old Testament. And the book constantly talks about this comparison between the old and the new. And in the new covenant, our relationship with God is mediated differently. It's mediated differently. Our relationship with God is mediated through, you guys know? I heard it, I heard it. Jesus, it's mediated through Jesus. Good job. We call him our great high priest. And this isn't just something we came up with, but it's something that the Bible did, okay? Hebrews 4, if you want to turn here, if you need a passage to study, really get into, this one is so good, okay? It's Hebrews 4, 14 through 16, and it basically talks about how our relationship with God has changed. It's totally different, okay? And it's through Jesus Christ, our great high priest. And it says, since then, and this is a conclusion of a long discourse all the way from like Hebrews 3, I think verse 13 or something like that. So essentially, this is the conclusion of this long discourse. And he says, Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is in every respect, one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So Hebrews was a book that was written to Jewish Christians. And as a Jewish Christian, in this advent of a new era, a new age, you can probably sympathize with their struggle. You can probably empathize with how difficult it would be to change the way in which you related to God. Knowing that everything you've known from the past, what's been practiced for hundreds and hundreds of years, it would be hard to change how you related to God your whole life. But here the writer of Hebrews holds them to hold fast to their confession, their confession that Jesus Christ is their Savior, that Jesus Christ is their Lord, that He is their great high priest, their Christian belief in Jesus. And though it was written to Jewish Christians, I think we can, we can find encouragement in it today. See, our mediator is no longer humans, is no longer priests, no longer religious acts, no longer sacrificial systems. And like we learned earlier today, God views us righteous because of Christ. Guys, this is the game changer, okay? It is through Christ that we can commune with God and have an intimate relationship. Christ is our mediator and it is our union with him that we are united with Christ that allows us to, quote, come with confidence, drawing near to the throne of grace. It is through Christ that we can have this intimate connection and relationship with God. But it's not something we figure out right at the moment of salvation, right? It's not something we totally understand and can comprehend, right? So imagine your relationship with God as if you are in a dense, dark forest, okay? You're lost, 
you're scared, you don't know where to go, and you come across this guide. At first, the journey is difficult, the terrain's tough, it's rough, you're not sure, and you're hesitant to actually trust this guide after your experience in this life, in this forest. But with this guide, as you travel with him, you see that he knows the way. He starts telling you stories of how treacherous and dangerous this forest actually is. But you listen to him. You can tell that he understands the dangers of this forest. And as you continue, you begin to trust him more and more. And as you trust him more and more, he becomes more than a guide. He becomes a friend. He becomes someone that you know cares about you. You're not lost. You're not alone. You're not scared. But you're confident and calm because you are, you are on a journey with someone who not only you trust, but someone who knows the way. In the same way, Jesus is our guide in our relationship with God. At first, when you found the perfect guide, you know, you were, uh, you were able to start to walk life's journey with him. As you began that journey, when we start our relationship with God, what do we do? We feel lost, right? We feel like, what, do, what does this look like? What do I actually do? We don't know where we're going. We don't know what we're doing. But as we walk with Jesus, we find that he is a faithful guide who cares about us. Through faith in Christ, we have access to a personal relationship with God. And it's through the journey that we see that he is the perfect guide. So the question is, will you follow this guide? Will you trust this guide? Will you listen to him? Because when we think about a mediator, they're essentially a guide. They're essentially one who makes the connection between the holy and the unholy. And Jesus has shown us the way that we can have a personal relationship with him. So what has changed in the law of the age of law and the age of grace is that our relationship with God is not mediated by humans, but it is mediated by God who is Jesus himself. Guys, since the garden, we have never been able to have such a personal and intimate relationship with God. Do you know how blessed and lucky you are to live in this age? It is based on God's mercy and grace that you get to experience a relationship with God through Jesus. Our basis for righteousness, our basis uh, or, and our relationship with God has changed. That's what we've seen. Now, lastly, we'll see that our family tree has changed, okay? And we're going to look at Romans 11, one of the easiest passages in Scripture. Uh, we're going to look at Romans 11, and we're basically going to talk about the olive tree, the natural branches, and the grafted-in branches. So this is really just a beautiful word picture of something that has been happening since the first coming of Christ, okay? We're going to see that our family tree has changed. Last week, we saw that God has made promises to Israel. He made promises to Israel, and they were his chosen people. God, in his sovereignty, he chose Israel. He chose them, and he gave them covenantal blessings. And in the age of law, Gentiles, they could not experience these covenantal blessings unless they were essentially becoming Jewish, unless they became an Israelite. That was the way in which they could um, experience those blessings, because... The covenants were conditional with the nation itself. So to experience those blessings, you had to become a Jew. Now, however, the Gentiles, what we see is now they have been grafted into the nation of Israel. 
Not that we are Israel, but we receive the blessings of Israel. The family tree has changed. In this era of grace is what we call the church. We see the church or the bride of Christ open up to the Gentiles in the book of Acts. If you've been studying Acts in our Bible studies, you know how crazy this story actually is. But basically, God has opened a way for Gentiles to experience covenantal blessings. See, Peter, he receives this vision that, uh, you know, what God has made clean, do not declare unclean. And the Gentiles are now able to experience the covenantal blessings. But is it through the law? No, it's through who? It's through Christ, right? The story of the Gentiles experiencing the covenantal blessings is described by Paul in Romans 11. And he uses this word picture. So go to verse 17. This is the first verse, and I'm going to try to break it down verse by verse so we don't get lost, okay? As we read this, keep in mind the olive tree is the nation of Israel, the natural branches are Israelites, and the grafted-in branches are Gentiles. Gentiles are basically any non-Jewish person. So we in this room are most likely all Gentiles. Verse 17 says, But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree. Here Paul is basically telling the Gentiles that unbelieving Jews, or the broken off branches, allowed for the gospel to go to the Gentiles. Now Gentiles are grafted in and are nourished by the root. They are not original members as the covenants were made with Israel, but now they experience the blessings of this age. The root is the patriarchs, right? It's, it's the promise to Abraham. Verse 18, it says, Do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. So Paul reminds the Gentiles that their foundation is tied to the promises made to Israel, the root. They are benefiting from that. They're benefiting from the blessings uh, of the covenants being fulfilled in, in, in Christ here. Verse 19 through 20, then you will say branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. So here we see again, it was not their ethnicity that saved them, but it was their faith. Continuing, so do not be, become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God, severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. So Paul is basically warning them of reverting back to their simple ways. Testify to this gospel you believe in by living it out. Okay, testify to being credible witnesses of this salvation that you proclaim. Because if you don't live it out, then maybe you don't actually believe it, right? He's encouraging to live in light of their true identity, the righteousness of God, what we talked about earlier. Now, verse 23, and even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them in again. So here we see that the Jews are not too far gone, and he's going get, to get into this a little bit more, but they can still repent and believe in Jesus. So even though they've been broken off, they still have a path through Christ to be restored back. So kind of complex, right? It's this big picture, but I want to clarify some things. So notice Paul in this picture always distinguishes between Israel and Gentiles. So an important note is that the church is not Israel, nor has the church replaced Israel. God did not say that Gentiles became part of Israel, 
only that they partake in the blessings of the root. I'm going to say that again. God did not say that Gentiles became part of Israel, only that they partake in the blessings of the root. They partake in the blessings. In the age we live in, God has begun extending mercy, issuing his mercy to all types of people, not just Israelites. And the very fact that you and I are in this room, this room reading the Bible, worshiping together, that is a blessing from God. That is a miracle of God's relation to humanity in this area, this era. We have been grafted into the root and we receive the blessings of the root. But in the next verses, we see that God's plan for Israel has not failed. That is so important in understanding biblical history is that God's plan for Israel has not failed. They are still God's chosen people and God's covenant promises have still been made to them and they will be fulfilled to Israel. This was a promise to a nation and he is not going to change his promise. One might think if this is the end, if this age that we live in is the end, that it has failed, but some of these unfulfilled promises still exist, right? The rebuilding and the future gathering of Israel in the temple, the coming of the Messiah, Jesus, to establish his earthly kingdom on earth, and the complete fulfillment of the Abrahamic, Davidic, and new covenant. Okay, that's all the things that have yet to be fulfilled completely. And all of these promises were made to Israel. Therefore, God must fulfill them one day to and in Israel. And until that day that Christ actually returns, the age in which we live allows us to experience many of the blessings reserved for the nation of Israel. And this is how Paul finishes his thought in Romans 11, okay? Verse 25, Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. So Paul's describing the age that we live in, the age of grace, that the partial hardening of the Gentiles was the means by which the gospel message would go out to the Gentiles. This is what we see in the book of Acts. You know, the partial hardening, the rejection of Christ the Messiah by the nation of Israel opened the door for Gentiles to receive this grace. And it continues in verse 26, talking about the hope for Israel. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob, and this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. God has a plan for the church and still a plan for Israel. Until then, we get to know Christ uh, know God through Christ, live a holy life empowered by the Holy Spirit and walk with God for the rest of our days. We are living in this new, beautiful age in which God has given us a savior and we can experience personal, intimate connection with God. So to recap, the age of grace has instituted a new way of how God is relating to humanity. What has changed is our basis of righteousness, our relationship with God and our family tree. Like I said last time, what we see in redemptive history is this, a trajectory of clarity, a trajectory of clarity. In each age, God's righteousness is becoming clear. We see God more clearly because he has given us Jesus. 
Colossians 1.15 says that he is the image of the invisible God. God's righteousness was revealed in the law, but God himself was revealed in Christ. And because of Jesus, everything changed. God has changed how he relates to humanity in this era, and because of that, we can see and know God more clearly. Let's pray. Dear God, thank you for uh, the truth of your word, the fact that we can know you through Christ, the fact that we get to receive uh, many of the blessings that uh, you promised Israel, the promise of, um, Lord, being a blessing, the promise of knowing your righteousness, the fact that we can have the law written on our hearts. Uh, And we just pray that you would be glorified in our lives, that as we see your story of scripture, we would be able to know you better in your word, that we would be able to see how you're working things out in the fullness of time, and that we can trust your plan for redemption. Um, Lord, we know that in the end, it will bring you the most glory and honor. Thank you for your word. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. 